Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, the number one podcast for people who have Lyme disease and those who love them. Every journey through Lyme disease is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 143 with Lyme expert, Bob Miller. Also, welcome with me to the studio, our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn the new information Bob has uncovered in his Phase 3 Lyme study, the two major genetic variants that he sees in people with Lyme disease, and the toxic state Lyme disease puts us in that prevents treatments from being effective. Thanks, Aurora. Also, I want to mention that we are getting ready to start back up the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. And if you remember, we both went on ketones, and I'm still using them. Aurora kind of goes on and off. On and off, yeah. On and off the ketones. The exogenous ketones. I am on a ketogenic diet to help my nerves heal. So I'm eating very high fat, moderate protein, lots of veggies, and almost no carbohydrates. Except through the veggies, mostly. Yeah. The, well, the carbs are from the veggies, I right? had two corn chips tonight uh. with our chili. So, anyway. So, there is a little a little <laughs> bit here and there, but it's way under 20 grams, and most days is probably right about 10. Yep. But anyway. Anyway. Where were we? Oh, yes, the Keto Challenge. So, if you go over to our website, if you're interested in trying these, we're actually giving away a month's supply. So if you head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com, you'll see the pop-up there and just enter your email and your name and we'll put you in a drawing for 30 days of the Keto OS Chocolate Swirl. Yeah. It's really good. Yep. And it's that simple. Yeah. And we don't have a whole lot of people enter these things. So they're not like thousands of people you're competing against. So there's a fair chance if you enter, you're going to win. Yeah. So just go ahead over LimeNinjaRadio.com and enter. Yes. Also, today we have a ninja nugget. Yes. And this is a story that I, a new story that I pulled from the interwebs. And today it is how a single bite could put you at risk for at least six different diseases. I was so happy you pointed this out. <laughs> First I of know, all, right? The author's name is Kevin Loria, and we bash authors so often when something bad comes out. And Kevin's doing actually a good job here. What he's trying to do, and it's believe it or not, this came out from Business Insider. So this is really mainstream, not where you would think you get good information about ticks and tick-borne diseases. But he's trying to warn people about co-infections. Yeah. I was so excited because I never see co-infections. It is. So the word is getting out there, all the work you're doing, kind of talking to people over the backyard fence and hanging out at farmer's markets with the information table and passing out pamphlets and talking till you're green in the face. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, is working. That's what I want to let you know. So don't let up. Keep going. Don't worry about what the CDC and they're putting out. They're always going to be fighting back. And especially one way you can know that you're being effective is that they are fighting back. So that's the good news. So 
the heck with them. Let them do their thing. They can't stop us. We have truth on our side. It's really that simple. All right, Aurora, why don't you tell us, <laughs> you like that little soapbox? Yes. Yeah, a little soapbox. Onward, soldiers. Okay, well, I'm ninja soldiers. Yeah. An army of ninjas? An army of ninjas. Something like that. <laughs> okay, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Bob Miller. All right. Bob Miller served as a naturopath for 20 years and earned his naturopathic degree from Trinity School of Natural Health. In 2015, Bob Miller was inspired to start examining chronic Lyme disease, and he founded Nutrigenetic Research Institute to research and publish reports on the relationship between genetic variants, labs, and presenting systems. And in 2016... He won an award at the European ILADS conference for his research into the genetic variants in those with Lyme disease. Thanks, Aurora. And this is our third episode with Bob, and they're always wildly popular. And I know you're going to love this one as well. Here we go. Bob, welcome. It's good to speak to you again. And we are going to take a deep dive into phase three of your Lyme study. But before we do this, I want you to give a little plug for your co-author. And that's your son, isn't it? Yes, uh, Matthew Miller, my uh, my son. He's uh, in his third year at, uh, at school. He's going to be a uh, psychologist with uh, minors in biology and uh, biochemistry and uh, going to be a, a holistic... Uh, genetic psychologist. So that should be a lot of fun as we work together. That sounds amazing. A great combination. Mm -hmm. We're having a blast. That's terrific. Now, this is the third phase of the Lyme study. And will you just give a quick overview? It's like, how, how did you get to identifying which of these genes are so important with Lyme disease? And then we can get into the specifics of phase three. Sure. Well, uh, you know, a lot of times people get interested because they have a problem with something or their family does. I never had Lyme disease. No one in my family did. But uh, somebody who actually did graphic artist work for me had uh, Lyme disease and was part of a Lyme support group. So they asked me to come talk about, at the time, just methylation. So I, I went and spoke for about an hour. And, of course, when you do that, some people came to see me and we started looking at their genetics they started seeing some nice progress. And, of course, everybody uses Facebook and has support groups. So they started posting on Facebook groups that there's this crazy naturopath in Pennsylvania who does, you know, this genetic stuff. And so I started getting calls from all over the country of people wanting me to uh, help them with their genetic nutrition. And I started observing that many of these people started looking the same. Now, what we're talking about here is I do a, a test called uh, methyl genetic nutrition analysis where we look at the data provided by 23andMe, and that's the, the company that for $99 you can get a saliva test and they'll give you 600,000 pieces of your genetic data. I then upload that into my own software that I created and I can look at what are called genetic variants or mutations or SNPs. It's all the same. And I started noticing that a lot of these people had genetic issues with the genes that regulate iron. There's what are called the HFE genes that decide how much iron you absorb from the foods that you eat. And I started noticing time after time these people were starting to have iron problems. So 
uh, I heard about uh, ILADS, the International Lyme Disease Association, and they were having a, uh, you know, people put in research uh, that they've done for their conference in Helsinki, Finland that was held there last July. So I decided to then do a, a formal study and again using Facebook, we had 300 people send us their genome and we started analyzing their genes compared to what's called the Thousand Genome Project, which is just a thousand people randomly. And we found that one of the genes related to iron was five times higher in those with chronic Lyme disease. So that was curious. And then we also found that they had more genetic variants, that they don't take a very important uh, neurotransmitter called glutamate and turn it into a relaxing one called GABA. So that was my findings for Helsinki that won an award uh, last June that people with chronic Lyme seem to have more absorption of iron and more glutamate. Now, as we all know, iron is very important. There are people around the world dying of iron deficiency. And if they don't get some iron in their diet, they're going to die of, of anemia uh, because we need the iron not only to do other things but primarily support the transport of oxygen. So it's a critical, critical nutrient. However, we uh, live in a land now in America here where there's not much famine and a lot of our foods are now fortified with iron. And then if you have genetic issues that you absorb a little bit more iron, you're going to have more iron in the body. Now, what we're talking about here is in the extreme form there's something called hemochromatosis. That's where people have a lot of genetic variants. Their iron goes sky high, and they, if they don't donate blood on a regular basis, uh, you know, it will do serious damage to the body. I'm not talking about hemochromatosis. I'm talking about just a couple of variants so that you don't have the disease hemochromatosis, but you're absorbing a little bit more iron. And then there's another piece to this that a little bit of extra iron may not you know, be the best, but it doesn't do a lot of harm. But if there's another process going on, that iron becomes what's called a hydroxyl radical. And that's what we showed in uh, phase one study, that many people also had high levels of what's called hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, and they had higher levels of cysteine. All of that combines together to make something called a hydroxyl radical. And, of course, as the name implies, radical means it's not good. It depletes your antioxidants. It creates inflammation inside the body, decreases your ability to make energy. So when you've got all these hydroxyl radicals going on, you're toxic, your immune system is weakened, uh, you're inflamed, and that's why many people with chronic Lyme are struggling because they see a Lyme physician, a licensed Lyme doctor, they try to do the herbals or the antibiotics and they either don't get the results they're looking for or they feel so badly on it they have to stop. And the reason that's happening is because they're in this toxic state uh, from the iron and the glutamate. So that was uh, phase number one. Um, any questions on that or are we ready to move on to phase number two? Well, how are there tests that show whether or not a person is has the iron problems how do you how do you find out whether or you just do it by symptoms? Well, that's a good question. Now, the uh, one of the interesting things that we see quite consistently 
is that people have genetics that they are absorbing more iron. And they'll tell me, oh, well, that can't be correct because everybody tells me I'm anemic. Now, what happens is that when this iron combines with hydrogen peroxide, we make hydroxyl radicals. Consequently, when you measure the iron, it can be normal or low. So by just measuring your iron is accurate if you're not turning it into hydroxyl radicals. But when you're turning it into hydroxyl radicals, the iron levels can even show up anemic. And unfortunately, if some well-meaning person says, oh, you're anemic, take some iron, they many times feel considerably worse because they've just made more hydroxyl radicals. So they're just throwing iron wood on the hydroxyl fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You got it there perfectly. Okay. Now, how to measure that? Um, as of this recording, uh, the next day for the couple days, I'm going to be meeting with a very well-known functional medicine doctor. I also have an advisory board, and you're one of those advisors as well. And we want to start looking at what could we measure that may indicate that these hydroxyl radicals are high. We don't know yet, but that's part of our ongoing research. So there, there's got to be some downstream effect, you know, something lipids being oxidized or something else. I'm a traditional naturopath. That's a little beyond my scope. That's why I created an advisory board of some of the top functional medicine doctors, people with their PhDs in biochemistry to determine how do we do that. Then one of the next steps is we want to work with a lab so that doctors can, you know, order these labs and get clues if these hydroxyl radicals are being formed. So for right now, we're just observing, but we're observing that as we get the person regulating their iron, knocking down the hydroxyl radicals, they're seeing serious improvement. Their Lyme doctor then is able to give them the drug and it's effective. So I often say that I'm one of the busiest practitioners who sees people with Lyme who doesn't treat Lyme. I'm a traditional naturopath. I'm not a licensed medical doctor, so I don't treat the Lyme. But the doctors send people to me to work on the conditions of toxicity because I just work on a nutritional basis but clean up the, the gunk, so to speak, so that the treatment can be effective and the inflammation can be knocked down. Okay, and one last question before we move on. Do you see these the inflammation from the hydroxyl radicals concentrating in any organ system in the body, or is it just uh, depending on where the infection is or where the, the inflammation happens to be? So, for example, do you see it more in like neurological symptoms or gastrointestinal? You know, it, it's all over the map. Uh, you know, one of the most touching things is I, I just recently had a uh, – uh, a 17-year-old boy who all he did was talk about suicide mm. and his parents thought they were going to lose him. We got these hydroxyl radicals under control and I just spoke the, to the mother last evening. She said he's gained 10 pounds. All he talks about now is his future, where he's going to go to school, what he's going to do for a career. She said, I have my son back. So for some people, it affects them neurologically. Yeah, absolutely. For some, for some people, the hydroxyl radicals go after the pancreas. And... Uh, and therefore, they stop making uh, the pancreatic head stops making the enzymes. So for many of these people, they need pancreatic enzymes and lipase because their digestion is a mess. Uh, for other people, it goes after the liver and their liver enzymes start going up. And for many people, it goes after the gut. So I suspect these hydroxyl radicals go after the weakest part of the body. 
wherever that happens to be. You know, three, four years from now, we may have some genetic profiles that'll predict where the weakness might be. Because clearly in this nutritional genetics, we are just sticking our toe in the water. We are just not seeing the entire picture and we'll be improving upon this for likely decades. Okay, that's a great summary. Thanks. So let's talk quickly about phase two, what you learned there, and then we'll move on to phase three. Sure. Well, what we found in phase two, uh, we started looking uh, at a broader base of genes. But first, we just looked at some of the methylation things. So we expanded the amount of genetics we were looking at, and I was kind of stunned to find that the ones that came up the most were related to neurotransmitters. And uh, we, we don't have time to, to get into the whole thing, but I would encourage people to uh, to go to the website, NutrigeneticResearch.org, and hopefully in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a like a 30-minute video on there that just summarizes what we found in, in phase two. But to sum it up, more evidence that there's trouble with glutamate, that they're either producing too much, they're not using it, uh, and they also have trouble with their dopamine receptor sites. So again, this glutamate is going higher. So that was the, the summary of, uh, of phase two. And now, dun, 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 phase three. <laughs> yes. <laughs> phase three. We're so we, ex- <laughs> yeah, so we expanded it even farther. So I said to my researchers, okay, if the iron is being absorbed, a little more. Uh, what else can we look at? So the HFE genes are related to bringing iron into the body. Now, there's also a molecule that we may call ferroportin. And ferroportin carries iron out of the cells. And much to my surprise, there was significantly more genetic variants in the ferroportin genes. So if we are absorbing more iron and we're not taking it out and we're not clearing our hydrogen peroxide, we're making hydroxyl radicals inside the cell. So then the next thing we started to look at was, okay, well, if we're making all these hydroxyl radicals, what neutralizes that? Well, your antioxidants, glutathione, catalase, SOD, neutralize those hydroxyl radicals plus all the other bad things. Now, there's a fascinating process inside the body called NERF2, called nuclear transaction factor. To understand that, let's think about in a building, we'll many times have a sprinkler in the ceiling. And the sprinkler is connected to a water pipe behind it. And as long as temperatures in the building are okay, the sprinkler does absolutely nothing. But if a fire starts, the sprinkler releases the water to put out the fire. Interestingly, McKay, we have a sprinkler system in every cell. And the sprinkler is called KEEP1, K-E-A-P-1. And the antioxidant stimulator is called NERF2. And when a fire comes along, rather than being actual flames, we're talking about free radicals, hydroxyl radicals. The keep one says, uh-oh, there's a fire. Nerf 2 goes stimulate what's called the antioxidant response element to start giving out antioxidants. Well, didn't we find 
that those with chronic Lyme have difficulty with that NERF2 and KEEP1 process. So that would make sense. So people with Lyme disease have generate more inflammation to begin with and then also have trouble once the inflammation begins to calm it back down. Absolutely. And that suppresses the immune system, makes you toxic. And that's why, you know, I talk to many of these people and they say, oh, I can't take supplements because no matter what I take, it makes me worse. Okay. And the reason it does is because they're in this toxic mess, inflamed, and if you take supplementation that tries to stimulate, for example, methylation or try to stimulate things, I mean, that's what nutrition does. The body says, please don't do that to me. I'm already inflamed. Don't try to push me. And I see this all the time when, when these people have this hydroxyl radicals and, and other ways of making inflammation. I'll say, oh, yeah, don't don't give me any supplements because every time I've done that, I've felt bad. And they have. So it isn't that a supplement is a problem. It's what's in the supplement and what is the action. So how do you get your foot in the door, so to speak, and begin to begin to break up this cycle of inflammation? Sure. Well, if they're making hydroxyl radicals, uh, one of the most fascinating things that's come along is called hydrogen water. Now, let's think about what a hydroxyl radical is. It's an OH minus. And this is biochemistry, not even 101. This is like before biochemistry 101. OH minus plus H2 equals H2O, which is water. I mean, you can't get much more simple than that. But interestingly, there's now supplementation created that you don't take the pill. You drop it in a bottle of water, put the lid on. It knocks the hydrogen loose from the H2O, so it bubbles up, and you can actually the, – the bottle, when you have the lid on, actually wants to expand. It pops a little bit when you take the lid off. You drink the water quickly. That H2 gets in there and neutralizes that OH-. minus. Now, that's kind of like the fire company putting the water on the fire, which is okay, but we've got to stop the fire. So part of our phase four study – is going to be that we're going to start looking at the genes that are involved in clearing hydrogen peroxide because hydrogen peroxide is what combines with the iron to make the hydroxyl radical. But for right now, we're also doing things that support NERF2, support the recycling of glutathione, and also things that regulate iron usage. So if people are absorbing too much iron, we may need to do things like uh, skull cap or lactoferrin that actually slow down and regulate the use of iron so it doesn't turn into a hydroxyl radical. So it's a two-prong approach, putting out the fire, uh, but that'd be like if you have a gas leak and it's burning and the fire company stands all day putting the water on, that's okay, but somebody's got to go turn off the gas. So we've got to simultaneously turn off the fuel, so to speak, that's creating this massive hydroxyl radical while we put out the fire with the hydroxyl radical uh, killers, which is the hydrogen uh, water. I want to pause this interview for a second and make sure everybody knows about the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. The Keto Challenge is a wonderful way to try exogenous ketones. And as Betsy Walker from Dickinson, Texas says, since I've been on a ketogenic diet again in combination with Keto OS... I've had several lost memories return, 
In addition, I've also noticed that loud noises no longer bother me. Now, we all know a ketogenic diet can help with your focus, energy, strength, sleep, inflammation, mood, basically all the things that get affected with Lyme disease. And adding exogenous ketones is an easy way to boost your ketone levels without having to be quite as strict on the diet. Or even if you are strict on the diet and you're having trouble getting your ketone numbers up, that's one way that you can do it. So go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and check out the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. Now back to our interview. Now, I have heard of people also breathing hydrogen gas. Do you use that in your office at all? Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, there is now uh, devices, uh, you can find it at hightechhealth.com, where it takes the uh, uh, some water and pulls out the hydrogen, mixes it with the air in the room, and then you uh, you breathe that air, and you're actually getting hydrogen into to the the body through the uh, through the lungs. Uh, I have one of those in my office, and uh, many people just feel immediate relief as they breathe the uh, the hydrogen. And it's very low low amounts, uh, but we're hearing reports of the head getting clear. But more importantly, we're knocking down those hydroxyl radicals. Okay, now let's back up a little bit and talk about NERF-2 a little mm-hmm. bit more. So mm-hmm. NERF-2 sounds like a, a, a signaling gene and a signaling yes. protein. So it, it's not an antioxidant itself. It's essentially it's the call center that's putting the calls out to the different other genes that then produce the glutathione and produce mm-hmm. absolutely whatever else is in there. So what, what exactly is this NERF-2 doing? Well, it does a lot. Okay. Um, glutathione, of course, is the master antioxidant. And your levels of glutathione will determine how long you live. A study was done of elderly people, 101 to 105, who were doing quite well. And they tried to figure out what's up with these people. They had the glutathione levels of the average 50-year-old. And that was the only thing that mattered. Nothing else seemed to be of consequence except their levels of glutathione. So when they interview these 110-year-old men and women and they say, well, the secret to my success was smoking a cigar every night and having a bottle of whiskey, it's not that. It's their glutathione. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Okay. So, so they were so good that despite the cigar or the whiskey, they still they still did okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but but the secret is pick your parents carefully. Yeah, okay. That, that's the real secret. So the uh, – NERF-2 is involved with all of the genes that signal the production of glutathione. Hmm. NERF-2 is involved with all of the genes that recycle glutathione because after glutathione neutralizes a free radical, it's a free radical itself. And there's a whole process of recycling it. And then finally, the GST enzymes is what uh, – takes glutathione, mixes it with a toxin to conjugate it and neutralize it. NERF-2 is the signal for that as well. So NERF-2 is your signaling that says make it, recycle it, use it. I mean, that's incredibly significant. But it even goes beyond that. And uh, there's something called uh, NADPH that is needed to recycle your glutathione. NADPH is also involved with the first step of clearing your hydrogen peroxide. NERF-2 controls the genes 
that make that as well. And then there's other genes that are involved in clearing hydrogen peroxide. NERF2 is the signaling molecule to that. And finally, remember we talked about that iron dysregulation is what creates the hydroxyl radicals. NERF2 also controls the genes that are involved with iron sequestration. So when you look back at all of that, it's like, oh my gosh, I have now become to believe I've been doing, you know, genetic nutritional research now for seven years. I think that the most critical ones are your KEEP1 and NERF2 genes. Because what I'm finding is the people who have the genetic variants in the KEEP1 that signal the NERF2 to signal everything else are the sickest of the sick. That when they've got homozygous variants on the KEEP1s, and this goes beyond Lyme. I mean, these are just people that are extremely sick. They've been to every clinic. You know, they've been to the top clinics across the world. Nobody can figure out what's going on. And it's because their KEEP1 is not signaling NERF2. And I think we found something very significant with this. And hopefully there are ways that you can bypass the KEEP1 and stimulate NERF2 on its own. Are there, is that what some of these herbs are doing? Oh, that's why we formulated, yeah, that's why we formulated the product called NERF2 Accelerator. And, and research is now showing that sulforaphane from, uh, from broccoli seed extract strongly stimulates, uh, NERF2 and KEEP1. Now, we're, uh, the next step we're going to be doing as we look at, uh, phase four, which we're going to try to present in, uh, in Boston, uh, this November, is that there's other genes like the BRCA genes, the CDKNA1s, that also, when they're variated, will suppress NERF2 and KEEP1. But I want to give everybody a, uh, a heads up. This is the first time anyone's hearing about uh, – you're, get, you're getting the scoop on your show here, McKay. So you're, <laughs> they're, they're going to hear it here first, okay? Um, one of the things we found in Phase 3 – was there's a gene called mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. And this is gaining a lot of attention uh, in the holistic, in the functional medicine, and even in traditional uh, pharmacological companies because mTOR does a lot. But just to simplify it, it stimulates growth of cells. Now, that's important. If we didn't stimulate growth of cells – you know, life wouldn't exist. We're making new cells. The old cell is dying, and that's the whole process. So mTOR causes cellular growth. But there's also an inverse to that, and that is called autography. And that means self-eating. So as everybody knows, our cells are constantly dividing, and the old cell dies. The aging process is when that new cell is not quite as good as the last one. And the more oxidative stress you have and the less antioxidants, the more that next cell gets damaged. So that's why you can look at somebody, say, who's 55, and you say, wow, they really look great. Or they, you look at them, it's like, uh, boy, they look like crap, okay? Well, the difference is the oxidative stress that's occurred to their cells. So the more oxidative stress to the cells the faster you're going to age. And that's why cigarette smoking, you know, you look at cigarette smokers, they look as though they're aging faster because they're constantly putting all these free radicals into their body. Okay. Uh, so 
we've got to have those cells divide almost as good as we can. So if our next cell is 99.999% as good as the last one, we will age uh, slower. If the next cell is only 95% as good as the last one, you're going to age quicker. Make sense? It does. Now, let me ask you a question. You may not have the answer to this. Can the body selectively uh, weed out the weaker cells, so to speak? Do you know if that happens or this mm-hmm. autophagy, uh, phagy, just uh, random? Well, no, uh, auto. And by the way, I, I'm still not quite sure how to pronounce it. I've heard three <laughs> three different pronounce, pronunciations. Um, I've heard autophagy, I've heard autophagy, and I've heard autography. And uh, maybe you know, maybe somebody's got to decide how to say it. But it's it's all the same thing. But I've I've heard credible credible people pronounce it three different ways. But it's a u t o p h a g y. Okay. So right now I'm trying to say it uh, autography. That's what. Autography. Uh, okay. Yeah. By the way, there was a, a Nobel Prize in uh, 2016, just last year, uh, given for a Chinese researcher's work on this, and it's getting a lot of attention in some of the top universities. So let's go back to what autography is. It's the self-eating of that old cell. So all the amino acids, the organelles, and everything that's in there has to go somewhere. It's like the cleanup crew. So let's think of autography as janitors, people who come in and clean up the mess. Now, what happens is that when mTOR is stimulated, which is growth, it tells autography, uh, just stop what you're doing because we're building new cells. Now, I'm sure people have seen this. As we age, sometimes people get brown spots on their skin. And they're referred to as age spots, liver spots, sun spots. And what that is, is when the autography is not clearing all that dead debris and staying in the body and becoming oxidized. So we associate those brown spots with Aging. So when you see someone has a lot of brown spots on their hands or, or their face or their chest, you associate that with aging prematurely, correct? Yeah. So what it is, it's because that autography is not clearing that waste from the body. Now, what we're going to be doing in phase four, and I'm seeing this, some of the sickest of the sick with Lyme have a lot of genetic variants in their ULK1. And that is the gene that stimulates that autography, that cleaning of the cells. But remember I said it's mTOR, which is the growth of the new cells. And when the body says, okay, let's build, it signals to the autography, stop cleaning, janitors go home because we're in the building process. Now, one of the things that as we've dug into autography, what stimulates it is iron. Because when the body sees iron, it says, okay, it's time to make new cells. So what did we just talk about with people who have chronic Lyme? They have more iron absorption. The other thing that stimulates mTOR is glutamate. Well, what's the other thing we just talked about? That these people have high amounts of glutamate. And then let's look at what we're doing to our diets. We are fortifying all of our foods with iron. Uh, if someone wants to be entertained or disappointed, go on YouTube and Google iron filings in cereal. And you'll see where people take a box of cereal, put it in a clear plastic bag, grind it to a powder, add some water, shake it up, hold a magnet, and you'll see the iron filings floating to the top. Oh, no. Yeah. 
So there's your fortified cereal. Okay. <laughs> now, what do a lot of people who have inflammation do? They have leaky gut. Right. So some well-meaning practitioner says, oh, you need to heal your gut with glutamine. Right. Okay. Now, glutamine heals the gut because it helps cell growth. Sure. But it stimulates mTOR. And what are we doing to our diets? You know, the food industry has decided if we put MSG in our foods, people will get addicted to it, which jacks up our glutamate. Then the other thing that stimulates mTOR is growth hormone. So what is our food industry doing? They've discovered that if you inject cattle with growth hormone, by golly, they get fatter faster and you can make more money. So we're adding growth hormones to our diet. We're adding monosodium glutamate to our diet. We're adding iron to our diet, stimulating mTOR. And the theory that I'm proposing, and by the way, this is just a theory. I'd, I'd like to partner with some universities. I have some universities I want to talk to. This would be fascinating to measure, and this will be my phase four study. And is there some way to measure this mTOR in this autography? But what I'm speculating, and purely it's speculation at this point, McKay, I'm not making this as a as a claim. I'm just saying this is one of our next research. I think many of these people who are struggling have activated mTOR, depressed autography. And so if you've got genetic variants in your mTOR that jack it up and genetic variants in your ULK1 that calm down the autography, you've got the perfect storm. Genetic predisposition to weaken cleaning, genetic predisposition to higher levels of uh, of growth, and then environmental factors that come in. You know, I'm sorry, there's one other thing I forgot. One of the things that has become a trend, a bandwagon, is measuring MTHFR. And it's an important gene. It is the final step of taking uh, folic acid from our diet and folate from our foods and turning it into methylfolate. And methylfolate is very important for cell growth. That's why women, when they're pregnant, they need to take folic acid. Deficiencies of folic acid can, you may not get pregnant, you may have birth defects, or you may have, you know, the, the, uh, the, you may have a stillbirth. Um, or, you know, you, you may lose the baby if you don't have enough folate. Folate is very, very important in my online classes. I teach the importance of folate. It's part of our methylation. If we didn't have folate, we'd be in serious trouble. But I think there's a trend that people are looking for this gene and all of a sudden they start taking a lot of methylfolate. And methylfolate stimulates glutamate. It stimulates new cell growth, which means mTOR. So folate stimulates mTOR. And then as you make new cells, you've got more cells that need glutathione, so it's making you more inflamed. So one of the things I'm trying to instruct people to do is let's not just measure MTHFR and start taking massive amounts of methylfolate until you know what else is going on. Because if you've got excess glutamate or your glutathione is depleted or you've got an imbalance of your mTOR and autography, you could be doing more harm than good by taking some methylfolate at that time. Now, you may need methylfolate, but my hypothesis is you've got to get glutamate under control You've got to get inflammation under control. Then you start looking at folate. I think what we've done is we've got on this bandwagon of folate, not looking at anything else, 
focusing on MTHFR. There's Facebook pages and all kinds of things where all they talk about is who has MTHFR and how much methylfolate they're taking. And I think we're going to look back on that someday as a big oops. Now, clearly, there's people who need folate, and they're not going to live if they don't have folate. I'm not saying it's not important. I think we've gotten a little bit carried away with it. In preparation for this podcast, I tracked down uh, a physician, uh, Dr. Jason Fung, and he's written a book on fasting, intermittent fasting. And Absolutely. And th- one of the things he talks about with this mTOR is that like insulin relates to sugar, mTOR relates to protein as well. So mTOR will be upregulated with protein. And I'm mm-hmm. always, uh, I was always a little bit concerned with people taking all these protein powders all the time. And now yes. I'm really concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you get somebody who thinks, okay, I'm sick and I need to support my nutrition and I'm going to get extra protein to help me rebuild from my Lyme disease, that's something else that can keep this mTOR elevated and the janitors, so to speak, out of the system and home in bed when we need to send the construction crews back home and get the janitors Absolutely. back out again. So just want to add in there, in addition to the glutamate, in addition to the iron, we've got this just fundamental process where where proteins involved. And the, the first time I heard of mTOR, this was five years ago and it went right over my head. It was, it was a doctor talking about cancer and he said, this is going to be the most exciting thing, uh, that anybody's going to talk about in the next 10 years. And I mm-hmm. tried to understand what he was talking about and it just went over my head. So thank you for that explanation because it makes it much more accessible. Sure. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the intermittent fasting because that's where I was just going to go next. Amino acids in particular, uh, stimulate mTOR, uh, particularly the branched-chain amino acids. Uh, and, you know, there's many people that they take branched-chain amino acids every day thinking, I need this to, to rebuild. And clearly, if someone's, you know, if their janitors are working fine and their mTOR is not overstimulated and they've got a digestive issue that they don't break down proteins, you know, taking amino acids might be life-saving for them. So we, we can't just blanket say, oh, don't take amino acids. But we have to be very careful that even amino acids, the wrong, you know, for one person, it can be life-saving. For the next person, it can be detrimental. And that's what I'm finding with genetics, that what's good for one person can be detrimental to the next. Right. And so not only not only the genetics, but then also the timing, this whole idea, the, the old-time bodybuilders, they always cycled on and off. And that's part of this. They, they figured out just through trial and error that they would get stronger if they didn't just totally feed, that they had to also then rest. And, and obviously this pathway is what was being act- activated, this autography. There we go. I said it right. The autography mm-hmm. pathway so that they could clean up afterwards. Was it Absolutely. Just, just building. It's just another way of creating inflammation, right? If you're just constantly building, it's another source of inflammation. And – also, what you talk about, the cell replication now isn't as efficient, and so you age faster. It's just – it is such an important piece. It's such an interesting piece that and observationally people have known this for years. You know, the Chinese call it yin and yang, and that goes back thousands and thousands of years. But uh, that they're finding – finally figuring out the exact pathways by which by which this happens. Yes, and I'm doing a lot of research now on, on this intermittent fasting, and the, the quick explanation of it is – that you pick eight hours during the day that you consume food and then you have 16 hours of no food. 
And what are we doing here in America? Well, we have breakfast in the morning, then mid-morning snack, then lunch, then a mid-afternoon snack, then dinner, then we snack a little bit before we go to bed. We're constantly keeping the body in this uh, in this mode. Again, observationally, not, you know, published study, but just observationally. I'm now talking to a lot of people who have this pattern, and I'll talk about intermittent fasting, and they'll say, you know, I only feel good when I don't eat as much. And, you know, you can just see the light bulbs going off in their head. And actually, I'm. this is way, way early, and this is the first time we're even talking about this. Uh, I'm thinking about putting together a new way of supplementation. And I'm not recommending this. I'm just throwing this out as a where we're researching that it may not be a bad idea to do amino acids, methylfolate, uh, those things maybe just two days a week. Then, you know, maybe three days a week of your antioxidants. Then two to three days a week of just supporting autography. And during that time, if you want to do a, a fast for a day uh, or just change your diet. So we're still developing that. And I know, McKay, you're, you know, so kind as to even give some input on that. So it'll probably be a while until we have that all together. But it's interesting you spoke about the old-time bodybuilders that they didn't build all the time. They built and they rest. And I also, I mean, I'm no serious uh, student of traditional Chinese medicine, but you're absolutely right that yin and the yang, that, you know, going back and forth. And as I said, I think we've now got environmental factors that are making this worse. The iron in our diet, the glutamate in our diet, the growth hormones in the uh, in the animals, uh, creating the proverbial perfect storm. And then on top of that, all the environmental toxins we're exposed to. And one of the areas I'd love to research, and that is, what are all these electromagnetic fields oh, doing right, to us? Right. Could they be stimulatory to mTOR or inhibitory to autography? Uh, don't know. But when you just, you know, aside from Lyme, look at the way autism is going up, diabetes is going up, behavioral issues. Uh, you know, I just came back from uh, Institute of Functional Medicine uh, conference on brain, and many of the top researchers are saying, People are becoming more anxious, more depressed, more angry, more frustrated. Uh, the hostility or the suicidal tendencies are going up dramatically. And I, and I have to wonder if, you know, food and electromagnetic fields and other things is just not jacking up our glutamate and uh, making us uh, kind of crazy. I mean, you just watch the news and it doesn't matter what your political leaning is. I think we can all agree that. You know, we've never seen anything like this as to how angry and frustrated and uh, the, the behavior is just uh, astonishing. You know, I'd like to throw one more uh, cause in there that I, b- I believe something to take a look at. And I forget exactly what they're called, but they're the exogenous estrogens. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're out there from plastics and soy and, and things like that. And those estrogen is also a stimulating hormone. So, yes. you know, you've got the insulin, the people with high insulin, which is a growth, basically, hormone. You've got estrogens out there, these exogenous estrogens that are in the water and in the food. Uh, and sometimes people are taking them supplementally, thinking that's a good thing uh, with some of the soy-based supplements. And mm, you know, like yes. I said, it just piles on. It's it's here and here. I was just reading about glyphosate and really its effect on the gut biome. I mean, that's a whole nother issue there. But, again, what they were talking about with the glyphosate is it doesn't take a whole lot extra of this 
over years of ex- exposure, say in the water supply or something like that, to begin to have an effect. So what you're talking about, it's not, it's not like one of these effects is coming in there and just laying waste to your pathways completely. It's just, it's subtly over years. And then you throw in an insult like Lyme disease, insult meaning a, 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 some damage to the body, something your body's really struggling to get rid of. And now you, when your body maybe was limping along and doing okay, it has to recover from this this massive event, and it just doesn't have the wherewithal to do it. And so you get just stuck behind the eight ball, and you, it turns into chronic Lyme, whether or not you clear the, the bacteria out or not. Yes, and again, I'm not a medical doctor, so that's beyond my scope. But I'm, as I talk to all of these people, you have to wonder how many of them, you know, the antibiotics have effectively killed the pathogen, but they're still doing poorly because, as you said, this got the ball in motion and put them into such an inflamed, toxic state that they can't recover. Yeah. Okay. So what else haven't we covered with the phase three? I'm actually looking at the chart that you sent me in front of me. Sure. And I think well, we've got all the big boxes here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to sum up phase three, you know, we reiterated again that there's more iron coming in, but the SLC40A1s don't take it out. And then there's there was one mTOR that uh, was much higher in those with chronic Lyme. And then uh, – but the big news was the uh, the NERF2. Now, there was an interesting study that uh, one of my interns just found. They, they did some mice studies where they they gave them more iron. And uh, yes, their iron went higher and that didn't seem to be that big of a deal. But they did knock out of their Nerf 2 and all of a sudden these mice had, you know, liver problems, brain problems. Everything started going wrong when you combined high iron with low antioxidant capacity. So when you've got the glutathione being made and recycled and utilized and your iron sequestration going on okay, your body can handle the higher iron. But when that higher iron came in, started creating uh, oxidative stress, and you did not have the antioxidant capacity, that's when bad things started to happen. Uh, I can just plug a a book, and I have no connection to the book. It's called uh, Dumping Iron. You can find it on Amazon. And you can get the Kindle or the book. Uh, just walks through all of the issues that are being created by high levels of iron. And uh, an interesting study was done of elderly men. And they looked at the ferritin, which is your iron stores. And as they started to analyze the data, you notice that at different age groups, you would have people with low iron and or high, or high ferritin and low ferritin. But as you started getting over, I think it was 70 or 75 years old, all of a sudden the average ferritin was coming down. What was speculated here is the people with the higher iron were dead and couldn't be part of the study. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's in- entirely possible. You, you hear some functional docs talking about iron that it's really our bodies weren't designed to live much beyond – our mid-20s, mid-30s, something like that. And at that point, iron, especially for a woman who's menstruating every month, having high iron is very unlikely. And men going out there and hunting and bleeding and things like that. But as we age, our ability to to stay with the iron and regulate the iron long-term is definitely diminished. So I think what you're on to here in this iron management is is crucial. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's one of the things that happens when people go vegetarian also is they just decrease their iron intake and being 
excessive all the time helps. Now, I'm personally not a fan of vegetarian diets because it's hard to get other nutrients, but I think there is, we have to take a look at the, the really big picture here. Oh, absolutely. The, the other thing. Can I just, can I just jump course. in on that vegetarian yep. thing real quickly? Uh, right before I spoke to you, I was talking to a, a very well known functional medicine doctor who wanted me to look at the genetics of, uh, of one of his uh, patients, and we found the same thing, that the, the, the iron, the glutamate, and he was thrilled by this whole thing, and he said, you know, it's interesting. The insurance company does insurance companies to give life insurance to very extensive analysis to come up with their actuarials, yes. and he said one insurance company now gives you a lower rate if you're a vegetarian. Now, I'm not recommending vegetarianism, but they, as they've actually, you know, they study this thing intently and they look at the factors that cause that. And so interestingly, people lived longer as they did not eat meat. Now, let me just pass on two clinical, uh, clinical pearls here. And that is if you drink coffee, black tea, or red wine when you eat, it'll slow down the iron absorption. Ah. Uh. Okay. And the other thing that has been shown, particularly for men, to increase longevity is donating blood. Right. Absolutely. And the only thing proven to increase longevity substantially is caloric restriction. Study after study shows that taking animals, have a control, and have another one restrict the, uh, the caloric, the calorie intake substantially, 20 to 30 percent increase in longevity by caloric restriction. Right, and that's bringing down that mTOR and getting it to calm down and go away for a little while. So the mm-hmm. body—that's that's what they're surmising. Now let's let's back up a little bit because one thing we didn't mention, especially with the iron and the oxidation of the iron, is if people just supplement straight glutathione and they have issues with their glutathione pathway, they could actually be sparing some cysteine or cysteine and Mm -hmm. that back up and then cause more iron oxidation. So sometimes people to tell us about what can go wrong with just uh, stimulating or not stimulate, but adding glutathione. Well, when I first started looking at this, when people had excess iron coming in, if you've got NERF2 problems or glutathione problems, you're not going to make your glutathione. Now, glutathione comes from three amino acids, N-acetylcysteine, glycine, and glutamine. And we've in our, in our genetic software, we've now mapped out the entire pathway of how the body makes glutathione, and we can see where breakdowns occur. But if you don't have that final step of making glutathione, your cysteine just sits there and doesn't turn into glutathione. Now, cysteine combines with iron in the first step of the Fenton reaction to make these hydroxyl radicals. So what do a lot of people do? They're inflamed, so someone well-meaning says, oh, take some N-acetylcysteine because that will help you make glutathione. That's fine if the genetics are working and that happens. If not, your cysteine goes higher. So in some instances, cysteine can help you make glutathione and feel better, in some instances, cysteine will actually make you more inflamed. Now, to address your question of glutathione, many times when people are inflamed, their glutathione levels are low. And they take, you know, a liposomal glutathione, S-acetyl glutathione, or their physician gives them a glutathione intravenous. And they can feel wonderful. It's like, oh my God, this is just fantastic. And they keep doing it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I'm not feeling so good. And they get worse. 
And what happened is as the body starts getting glutathione in it, it says, oh, thank you very much. I don't need to make it. And then your cysteine builds up and then that uh, creates more oxidative stress. So ironically, when I see this pattern and I inquire with the people, what happened when you took glutathione? They'll say, yeah, my my physician said, you're going to do wonderful on glutathione. You're going to love this stuff. And I felt horrible. Now, there is something called the Myers cocktail where sometimes people put vitamin C with it. Now, vitamin C is a wonderful antioxidant, but it also helps you absorb more iron. So in some instances, vitamin C makes people worse because they're absorbing more iron. And then if that causes them to go anemic and then some well-meaning person says, oh, now you're anemic. Let me give you a little more iron. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, I just spoke to a person uh, two days ago, young girl, 16 years old, and she was given intravenous vitamin C and she had this strong pattern. She said she got so sick she couldn't even speak. Hmm. And she said she felt never felt worse in her whole life when doing intravenous vitamin C. And, you know, some well-meaning person said, oh, we think it's just the die-off. Let's just keep going. Right, right. Well, it wasn't a die-off. It was hydroxyl radicals. You know, then she went to another practitioner. Oh, you have MTHFR. Here, let me give you massive amounts of methylfolate. Well, it made her worse. Okay. Oh, you're anxious. Well, let me give you a little bit of GABA. Well, glutamate turns into GABA. And if you start taking GABA, you're starting to spare glutamate. It's going to make you worse. <laughs> so, so I'm a big fan of supporting glutamate to GABA conversion. And I'm a much bigger fan of supporting NERF2 and your glutathione genes to make glutathione. So if somebody's really inflamed, I don't like to give glutathione more than one or two weeks and then, and then stop because Ironic as it sounds, I mean, I go back to, you know, the people who live the longest have the highest levels of glutathione. So why don't we take glutathione? But if you've got this pattern, and by the way, if if you don't have this pattern and there's something wrong, you're not making glutathione, supplementing glutathione can absolutely be life-saving. And there's probably some people that don't have the iron oxidation. Something is happening. They're not making glutathione and they're just the happiest campers on consistent glutathione. But for other people with this pattern, Glutathione can make you worse, which takes us back to we have to go to individualized nutrition and individualized medicine because what's helpful for one person can be harmful to the next. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Bob, I'm so thankful for you spending so much time with us. I do have one last question. This is almost my personal interest too. And again, you may not have its technical one, so you may or may not have an answer to it. Is there a threshold for the activation of NERF2? Does anybody doing any research into that? Mm, no, not uh, that's. But that's an excellent. Uh, that's an excellent question. Because I'm I'm doing some research on uh, particularly on the nitric oxide and how nitric oxide is used by the body to kill off invaders, so bugs. And there also seems to be some research showing that the nitric oxide is not effective in killing off uh, Borrelia in particular. So one of my questions, though, is people often seem to be deficient on the nitric oxide pathways. I'm wondering if, like, if the body just has this kind of weak uh, oxidative pattern, so the body creates these uh, oxidants to kill off the invaders and and to help it, but if it doesn't produce enough of it to actually trigger the nerf 2 just to cause 
damage. So I'm, I'm wondering also if, if part of this, again, this is kind of a Chinese concept that you're, there's not enough heat for the, for the yang to transform into yin. It's like there's not enough heat to bring the water up from the lake to create rain again. So I'm wondering also if there can be a weak, uh, oxidative part of the cycle that doesn't trigger enough nerve two. So the inflammation stays there. It's not necessarily a defect in the nerve two gene, although you may also have that. It's just not getting activated. So that's, sure. that's one of the Absolutely. things I'm trying to track down on the other end of this. Well, sure. And that's why even things like intense exercise, you know, that creates free radicals, you know, stimulates the antioxidant uh, response. There's your yin and yang. But let me just address the NOS2 very quickly, or the, the NOS, uh, the nitric oxide synthase. If you've, uh, if you're low in glutathione, you're going to start letting your uh, peroxynitrite go up. Peroxynitrite suppresses what's called tetrahydrobiroptin, BH4. BH4 is what combines with the NOS enzyme and L-arginine to make nitric oxide. So the more your glutathione goes down, the less nitric oxide you're going to make. And then also, if you if you don't have an FSOD, your superoxide free radical combines with nitric oxide and chews it up. And then that makes peroxynitrite. So we can actually be, by having peroxynitrite and lower glutathione, we can be slowing the production of nitric oxide and we can be chewing up what we've got and turning it into a bad guy. So that's why there is a glutathione nitric oxide relationship. It's symbiotic that they, they both uh, regulate each other. So uh, it's to me, it's amazing the intricate dance between how one thing affects the other. And that's why we've got to be careful uh, not to go in and just mess with something too much. Can you can uh, – you can really throw things off uh, pretty substantially if you do too much of the wrong thing. And that's a great way to end this. So definitely experiment, but also keep track. And the other thing that you bring up that's so important, Bob, is sometimes, you again, you do something that you feel great for two weeks or four weeks or maybe even a little bit longer, and then things start going downhill because it takes a little while for the negative effects to accumulate. So it's so important. And we just had a guest on a couple weeks ago talk about what she does is she takes a picture of herself every day and the different supplements she adds in so she can kind of quickly scroll through and say, okay, my eyes are starting to look really gray and dull here. And what did I add in, you know, this past month? Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sure. I'll just address that quickly before we end it. And that is that if you do anything that supports your glutathione, you can feel great as you start to detox. But if it starts throwing off some nasty stuff and the eliminative organs can't carry it out, you get what's called the Herxheimer reaction. Now, so what you have to do, and I always tell everybody, you know, you might feel great followed by bad. That's not all bad, except we just got to slow down the detoxification or make sure the colon, the lymph, the kidneys are supported. Now, the other thing is when you take some nutrients, they turn on pathways and enzymes take substance A and other cofactors to make substance B. So if you start things going and you run out of cofactors, the process stops as well. So that's why I'm a big fan of before starting methylation, giving people, you know, a good multi-mineral and B vitamins without the folate and the B12. So those cofactors are in there. So if you push a pathway, you'll feel great. And then you run out of the cofactors. Then you think, well, maybe I just need to take more of that. And then that doesn't work either, where it's actually a cofactor issue. So those are the two things that can create that good followed by not so good. And that's so, so very important. 
especially for people who've been sick for years, because you're gonna, your body's just gonna run out of different cofactors. You're, you're just depleted, severely depleted. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, that's such an important point. Nutrition is a powerful, powerful tool, and it, it's not necessarily simple. Absolutely. And if I can just do a quick commercial, if there's any practitioners, if there's any practitioners listening to this, uh, health practitioners, uh, I have an online course uh, that tries to teach all of this. And you can uh, subscribe to that at uh, dnasupplementation.com, dnasupplementation.com. And then the uh, neutrogenicresearch.org right now has a video on phase one. Videos hopefully will be coming soon on phase two and phase three for the consumer who wants that consumer version of uh, of what we're doing. Yes, and, and full disclosure and also uh, as a plug for you, I've been to one of Bob's live uh, practitioner seminars and it's absolutely worth the time and going to. This is such an important part of helping people get together. And if you're not doing this, you're missing the boat. So get online, do the online course, make it to one of his seminars. You won't be sorry. Okay, well, thank you for those kind words, McKay. Always a pleasure to chat with you, my friend. Likewise. So uh, it's always, I will say, I've probably said this before, but it's always a pleasure listening to Bob Miller. Just the way he explains things makes me feel. You know, I do wish we were a video podcast and we had slides to help explain what he's talking about. I know, but at the same time, he breaks it down so well. It's like you can not have any experience in chemistry and still get maybe a little bit bogged down in the vocabulary, but still kind of follow along with what he's saying. And he but does, he has an analogy for everything. He does have an analogy. He's like you. The, you gorilla, both have- the gorilla in the room, <laughs> the sprinkler system. Yes. But one of the things he was talking about that made me stop and say, oh, that's very interesting, was when he was talking about hydroxyl radicals which was the hydrogen peroxide molecule. Mm, no. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> but they go after, he was saying hydroxyl radicals go after the weakest part of the body. And I just had to stop because I remember you saying that exact same thing about that's what, about, that's what Lyme disease does. Well, the weakest, when you put pressure on anything, the weakest well, link yeah. is going to, break, right? Right. But it it just seems to be, it's not fair. The body piles up and nature piles up on the weakest link and that's just what goes first. So when you have oxidative stress, when you have stress of any kind and it's distributed throughout the body, it's going to find that weak link, so to speak, and and pull it apart. Now, the other thing that can happen with the the hydroxyl radicals, radicals, I think, is the damage can be localized as well. So it's uh, the hydroxyl radicals are so reactive that they don't travel very far. Mm-hmm. So if they're producing, being produced in fairly high numbers in a location, may, maybe that's one of the reasons. I think there are other things involved, but maybe that's one of the reasons why symptoms travel around so much with Lyme disease. So the system will break down, so to speak, locally, and the body will produce these radicals, and it'll cause damage locally. And then the damage is done. The body's not going to produce too many of these things because if you produce really a ton of those, you would have necrotic tissue. The, the, your tissue would die. Mm. They're that dangerous. 
So the body quickly shuts them down, but the damage has been done, and now you've got the damage that the body has to recover from. And the other thing that's interesting about damage of this sort is the leftover inflammation can also create extra damage. And that's uh, – in in heart attacks, it's called or, – or strokes also, it's called uh, ischemia, which is oxygen – deprivation basically so mm-hmm. the start from oxygen and then there's what's called a reperfusion injury and that's when the oxygen comes rushing back to the area and so there are actually two injuries that happen there so there's a lot going on when the body is injured and then there's a lot going on when it's healing and both stages can cause some damage that need to be cleaned up so having those hydroxyl radicals around is is a big deal and it's very interesting, and what he's doing to attempt to block the damage from those is is, is useful, I believe. I prescribe some of the supplements that he recommends for mopping up the hydroxyl radicals and uh, the hydrogen water, and it, it seems to work pretty well. When people need that, it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we do have those two other those two other episodes. Yeah. Um, and we'll put those links in the show notes section. There, they really, it does follow a sequence. He is this phase one of the Lyme trials, which he talked about. Lyme studies, not Lyme yeah. trials. Lyme, <laughs> Lyme trials is the name of a movie, a movie documentary that's being done out there. We interviewed those folks as well. So there's phase one of the study, phase two and phase three, and he, each time he gets a little deeper cut into it. So this is all getting very, very interesting, and he's on a good path here. He's got a lot of research. He has lots of help around him now. He's surrounded by good people. So you want to know what he's doing. The other thing he's doing that's very interesting, I mentioned at the end of the interview, is he's training people. And full disclosure, I'm one of the people he has trained and continued to study with him. And so he's got acolytes out there. He's got people he's trained out there who do something like what he does. You know, everybody puts their own spin on it, but they have access to the same software that he does and get into this deep dive analytics of genetics and try to make sense of it. And so there's going to be a lot of people out there who are going to be doing really good work with this. So you, it's hard to get hold of Bob. You know, he's incredibly busy and there will be other people that you can schedule with who, who will be good enough. I'm not trying to say call me right away, but if you do, that's fine. I'm not going <laughs> to say no. But there are other people out the country. He's trained hundreds at this point, I believe. And so just keep your eye out for this. It's something you'll want to take a look at. And the other thing, the other thing, there's one more thing. Wait, one more thing about this. But wait, there's more. There's more. If you haven't had your 23andMe test done, you don't need the $200 test. This was a mistake I made a couple months ago. And I don't know if the policy changed over at 23andMe or just became aware of it. You only need the $99 test. That will get you the raw data. So that's, I mean, that's really affordable. Then you've got the basics there, and then you can begin to take a look. There are other free online tools out there. I don't think they're as good as Bob's, but they give you begin to give you some information. And then you can get people like Bob or people he's trained to take a real in-depth look at what's going on there. So that's my plug for methyl 23andMe, methyl genetic testing, genetic-based nutrition. Mm-hmm. It's really something that's important. If you have if you have the genetic predisposition to have an, a struggle in an area of, of making antioxidants or responding to some of these challenges, mm-hmm. you need to support that. 
because that's what's going to keep you from suffering in the long term. And if you're struggling healing all the way, it may be one of the issues that's keeping you from healing. And speaking of that healing, let's brief thank you. I've gotten a couple of cards in the mail this week and a little gift of uh, some skin salve that I appreciate very much. And I've got right here in front of me, actually. Yes, he does. And just thank you. So I want to give a quick update. The arm gets the arm, my arm, the arm that's (laughs) attached to me, (laughs) that belongs to me. It's funny how we depersonalize things when they don't work. Anyway, my arm is getting better every day. There's still some muscles on the top of the shoulder girdle. So if I was trying to do the chicken dance, I'd have one wing flapping and the other one wouldn't. (laughs) But I'm getting stronger. I can actually lift light things now with my right arm. So it is getting better every day. Thank you all for the emails and the support and the cards. I really, really appreciate it. And we'll keep you updated. At this point, I've stopped the Cowden protocol. I really don't think there's any active disease going on. I was looking, I got a recommendation to try some mushrooms to help the muscles heal. I haven't gotten those yet. I went to a local health food store and they didn't have anything. So I'm going to try a farmer's market over the weekend where the man grows mushrooms himself. So we'll get some, we'll get some live mushrooms to try. All right. That was way more than I planned on talking about, but you know, sometimes, sometimes you just got to talk. Sometimes you just got to talk. As a reminder, head over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and enter into our Keto OS giveaway and check out the Keto Challenge while you're at it. Thank you, Aurora. And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja Fact of the Day. Did you know ninjas save 100% on their car insurance by switching to GEICO? Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.